Let's face it, people have different sleep needs. While you love your partner, sleeping next to them might not always be the most comfortable. Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Maybe you prefer a firmer mattress and your partner needs something softer. Because of the individualized comfort that you get from Sleep Number Smart Beds, you and your partner will sleep better together. All Sleep Number Smart Beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. And their temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. The smart beds even automatically respond and adjust to your movements so you sleep comfortably all night long. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards only at a sleep number store or sleepnumber.com the following episode of nordpod contains explicit language listener discretion is advised welcome to the club that you didn't want to join with a voice of red disease and this jingle doesn't rhyme nordpod 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 My name is Matthew Zachary, and welcome to NordPod, right here on the Offscript Media Network. Now, I've been advocating on behalf of cancer and rare disease patients for over 20 years. Why? Because I am one. NordPod is the official podcast of the National Organization for Rare Disorders. And a quick reminder before we get started, that if you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts because it helps other listeners like you discover the show. Now, let's get started. Hello, friends. Welcome back to NordPod. Welcome all new subscribers to The Voice of Rare Disease. On the show today, Karina Sturm is a disabled journalist, blogger, author, and filmmaker. She tries to connect with the chronically ill people around the world and spread the word as a young disabled woman about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome and other chronic illnesses. From giving up her job as a research associate in 2010 to cashing out her life savings just to come to the U.S. for better care, Karina has managed to adapt her life around her symptoms and not the other way around. A necessary pivot to journalism turned her into one of the world's most vocal rare disease activists around, and her blog, Holy Shit, I'm Sick, is read by thousands around the world. Her must-watch film, We Are Visible, is so multi-award-winning and critically acclaimed, there's an endless scroll of credits on the homepage. She is the accidental advocate whose story you need to hear. Enjoy the show. Karina Sturm, thank you for coming in NordPod. We are so excited to have you here. Man, this is going to be a great conversation. (laughs) I hope so. Thank you for having me. Uh, Well, just lower all of your expectations and hopefully we'll be pleasantly surprised. (laughs) I'm sure I will be. Yeah. So you're very Googleable. We'll put links to all that you are in the show notes. But 
you know, I think where we can find really interesting common threads just to start a great conversation is this idea of never being taken seriously when you're younger, when shit happens. Can you talk us through the it's all in your head conversation? <laughs> of course. Um, so it's all in your head is something lots of people with rare conditions, but also chronically ill people overall hear a lot, especially women. So when I started to have symptoms of Ehlers-Danlos syndrome, I went to dozens and dozens of doctors. And it's all in your head was probably the most common thing that I've heard there. Um, they also told me I'm just a little bit hysterical, um, that... You know, I'm a woman, so I might just exaggerate and things like that. And this it's all in your head is kind of used to dismiss your symptoms because I guess it's it's easier, you know, to just tell people their symptoms aren't there. So that's how doctors kind of make their lives easier, I guess. So they just want to be lazy. They don't want to do the work. Well, some of them, not all of them, of course, but this is like a very common threat for women, especially with chronic pain that they just get dismissed and belittled. It's also kind of called gaslighting, you know, when they, when doctors make you believe that you're just imagining this and then as a consequence, you doubt yourself. So that's like very traumatizing and very painful and also leads to a much, much longer way to actually get the correct diagnosis. Yeah, I, I didn't mean to throw every doctor under the bus. So <laughs> from that perspective, <laughs> no, <laughs> no. but I, again, I, and like from a really dark humor, tongue in cheek, I was also told it's all in your head. I wonder if I'm having a brain tumor. So it really was in my head. Haha, <laughs> <laughs> not funny. But thanks doctors for not taking me seriously as well. And I'm sure we'll have a lot of nodding heads from our listeners who were also never taken seriously. Uh, did that just make you that much more angry to pursue a real answer? How were you finally diagnosed properly? I understand it took a while. It took a very long time, yes. Um, and at the beginning, when I actually got diagnosed, I was really angry because lots of those misdiagnoses or not being taken seriously led to many, many wrong treatments, which actually hurt my body even more. So there's a lot of damage that could be easily avoided by simply listening to me. But let me just kind of start at the beginning so you kind of get an impression um, how I finally got my Ehlers-Danlos diagnosis. So I started to have severe acute symptoms in 2010 um, after a medical treatment that somehow went wrong. And it basically started in my neck. So I experienced symptoms of something called craniocervical instability, which is an instability between your skull and your neck bones, pretty much. And those symptoms weren't taken seriously. But um, luckily, I was able to research myself. So, you know, Googled it, uh, became my own advocate, ordered myself tests, and then was diagnosed shortly after with um, craniocervical instability. So I did all kinds of treatments to like muscle training, physical therapy, and pretty much all kinds of shit that anyone told me to try. Like even a stranger, a random stranger on the street would tell me, you know, go to this doctor, drink this tea. I just tried it all because I was so desperate <laughs> for any sort of relief. But nothing really helped. And I just 
seem to be getting worse and worse over time and more joints became unstable and painful and it just didn't make any sense. So um, after about four years, I decided, okay, enough is enough. I've tried it all. I've seen probably about 50 to 100 doctors all over Germany and nobody had any sort of useful answer for me. So I decided to do one last experimental treatment in the United States. I lived in Germany back then. I barely spoke any English um, and I used all my savings that were meant to be for, you know, traveling around the world to have this medical treatment and get thousands of injections in my whole back. And I'm not even kidding. It was like really thousands. And this treatment didn't help either. But this doctor in the United States didn't give up on me and said there must be some underlying condition because nothing makes sense that happened to you. And he sent me to a neurosurgeon who turned out to be one of the few experts for my condition. So I saw him. He did lots of tests, talked to me for hours, and then told me I had Ehlers-Danlos syndromes. Right. Syndrome. So it was your like reaction? Let me ask you: Was your reaction to that diagnosis? Thank God, it's something. <laughs> yes and no. Um, it was part of it, and the other part was well, fuck, now I'm chronically ill. Right. Because up to that point, I was kind of hoping there was some sort of healing, some treatment, something that stabilizes my condition. And then all of a sudden it was like, nope, there's nothing. You just have to deal with this. I want to go back to something you said earlier, which is you said you became your own advocate. I, I want to spend some time on that, that, that abstract there. Most people aren't born with, I mean, you may know the word chutzpah, Yiddish, but you're German. You know, it means like moxie, like a sense of like um, precociousness. Most people aren't born that way, knowing that they could just challenge things and demand mm. better. Where in the process do you feel like everything just hit a point where your, your enragement <laughs> with, the, with the status quo <laughs> brought that beast out of you? I think there was one very traumatizing situation, which was like, where I said, this is enough. I just, I don't have to take this anymore. It was right at the beginning, probably about like four to six weeks after the severe symptoms kicked in. And I went to the emergency room and I told them that half of my body is numb. I don't really feel my tongue anymore. And I stopped breathing at night, which was actually because of brainstem compression, which is like kind of life-threatening. And they were like, yeah, yeah, sure, whatever. Um, let's do an MRI to just, you know, kind of calm her down. Um, and they did this MRI and um, they sent me back to, you know, my hospital room. And after like 10 minutes, a couple of nurses stormed into my room, took my bed with me in it and just put me up to the stroke unit. And they didn't talk to me. And I was like, what is happening? What's going on with me? Nobody said a word. Then about two hours later, a doctor came to my bed and was like, yeah, we think you might have had a stroke. And maybe even your blood vessels in your neck are both um, ruptured on both sides. So this is bad. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, great. Uh, thanks for telling me. And the next morning, uh, a group of doctors came to my bed and were like, nah, I think this was a misdiagnosis, so you can go home now. 
I was like, are you kidding me right now? <laughs> like, what's going on? I And I think that was the point where I started to like only trust myself. I uh, recently did an interview with a young woman who ultimately had multiple sclerosis, but she was misdiagnosed with leukemia, like stage four, you're going to die tomorrow, leukemia. And then they're like, oh my God. oops, sorry, you don't have leukemia you have MS. And she's like, oh, God, thank God it's only MS, right? Like, <laughs> how do you make sense of this craziness? I mean, like, so much for bedside manner, right? Exactly. And, like, the, the weirdest part was they sent me home but gave me blood thinners and were like, just in case. I was like, okay, did I have a stroke? Did I not have a stroke? Why am I going home? So what's happening right now? <laughs> it's just it doesn't make any sense. So once you were finally, and, and I mean, kudos again, the gumption to use your life savings to come to the States, meet up with a doctor who stuck with you. Was that the first time you felt like you actually had a relationship with a provider that gave a shit? Yes, that was the first time after four years. Um, he was the only one that listened, the only one that tried to help. And even after he couldn't help. He didn't give up. And that was something like very unique and special that I've never experienced before. So once you were properly diagnosed, by the way, we should mention that uh, Ehlers-Danlos syndrome is a rare connective tissue disorder. And even if you don't know what that means, connective tissue, those two words mean like your body should be connected to itself. I mean, I'm no doctor, but you probably need functioning connective tissue, right? Yes, that's a, a very good description. Probably the best I've heard in a while. <laughs> All right. So you finally get this. There's a bit of an aha and then an oh shit. What happens next? Well, then you feel completely lost because now you have a diagnosis, but now you don't know what to do with it, right? Like my whole life fell apart. Um, I had to stop working a while before the diagnosis but I was like, what am I going to do now? Like, what can I even still do with my symptoms? Because they're likely not going away now. Um, so, well, I had to like completely redefine myself. Um, I first started educating myself and try to learn everything I can about EDS and all the comorbid conditions. Uh, comorbid conditions are conditions that come along with EDS often for many people. And I have well, <laughs> a full page of diagnosis by now. Um, so I read a lot about it. Um, I tried to find out everything I can for probably like six months. And then I felt, you know, now I have a like the basis to like manage my condition. And then I started finding doctors and kind of put together a team of doctors to treat me, which was very hard, especially in Germany, because there are just a few experts and after that, you just kind of try to figure out what to do next, step by step. Um, then I needed to find a new job, a new purpose in life. Yeah, because somewhere you need to get money, right? So it's like a, a very, very long process from basically getting diagnosed to actually accepting that you're chronically ill and then finding a new life because that's what it is. You completely start over again and become a different person. Yeah, I think you definitely win the we don't care about you game. 
of a, oh, she's not breathing at night? Ah, fine, whatever. Oh, she's got these things? Ah, fine, whatever. <laughs> so you meet this doctor, you build this wonderful team, you go back to Germany, you mentioned that there are few and far between specialists out there. Was there a like, oh, okay, now we can do this? Or like, uh, we have no idea what to do with you in Germany? Uh, both. I mean, at the beginning, it's kind of hard because you don't really know where to start, right? So you need a, a primary care physician that at least kind of takes care of your most basic needs, let's say. But then most of those say, I don't know anything about EDS. You need someone who actually has knowledge about EDS, but then there is none. So what do you do? So my first step was to find a primary care physician that is willing to learn with me together and who is willing to read some stuff that I uh, give him, like academic publications about EDS. So it's like you basically become your own doctor because you start managing your condition and then you go to your doctor and you're like okay i read this can you please prescribe this for me <laughs> and if you're lucky he does it or not <laughs> is it safe to say that blood thinners don't really help the situation <laughs> well for me they didn't <laughs> right i mean they aren't used for eds but you know some people need them anyways for different reasons but yeah, that was not helpful. I mean, I have another story, which is semi-relevant. Again, I, I just love the common threads. I mean, what I went through in the 90s, you went through in the 2010s, and it's the same shit. I was given Robitussin for brain cancer. So, you know, didn't work, didn't really help until I was properly diagnosed <laughs> and taken seriously. So I just, I, I, I'm in such, I, all the feels for what you had to go through to get this. But I did want to uh, wrap up the segment by asking you specifically, what are, if there are any ways medically to treat this? What are you on? Is it like 90 pills a day? You have a crazy regimen. <laughs> What's it like to live with this syndrome? No, it's more like a combination of different approaches. So I do have some medication to treat um, my chronic pain and some medications for all you know the comorbid conditions that come along with EDS. But then I guess the, the most important thing is to adapt my life around my symptoms. And then I do some physical therapy and I do have um, some assistive devices like braces and like all of these things together help me manage my symptoms the best way possible. Back with our guest after the break. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. 
That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So Karina, one of the amazing facets of advocacy is that you never plan to be one. It's not like you woke up one day, I can't wait to have this crazy rare disease and become an advocate. Like this didn't occur to you in 2007, but yet it befell you and you took a very active stance channeling, I would assume was just endless years of pissed offedness. I just made that word up, but you know what I mean? <laughs> Did you meet other people? This is very rare. Were there any communities, especially for younger women, with this that gave you a sense that you weren't alone? Yes, um, that was pretty much the first thing that I did was trying to connect to other people because you need somebody you can relate to and you need some sort of guidance where to start your search for doctors and treatments. Um, and there are lots of lots of Facebook groups out there, like especially um, in the English speaking area, there are super many you can connect with. Um, and also there is something called Inspire, which is a, a English forum with um, people with EDS as well. So yeah, I joined pretty much every group I could find. And then at some point I started my blog and wrote about my life. And this way I do get lots of um, people writing me and asking me for advice. So I meet a lot of people with EDS and other conditions now basically just through my blog without actively seeking any sort of connection anymore. So that's really nice. I was reading on your site this euphemism of you had to pivot to journalism. <laughs> like, like you were mm. kind of like, you didn't really have a choice. You kind of, this is where, where your life went. I love the fact that you were doing some research beforehand. Talk to me about what that was and if being a quote-unquote researcher factored into mm. your natural curiosity to be, quote, pivoting <laughs> to journalism. No, I don't think so. <laughs> um, I also, I was a lab technician, right? So uh, I was working in a, in a research lab in Germany. It was biotechnology. So we did some um, purifying crystallization of proteins to basically find out their structure. Um, and my area was a protein called SIIE from Salmonella. It wasn't the most interesting thing I ever did, but it, it was a, a good time and I learned a lot and it definitely helped me to be able to read research publications because I needed exactly that kind of knowledge later when I got diagnosed with EDS. So, um, but the journalism part was, I guess, coincidence uh, because I just, I didn't know what to do with my life anymore and I didn't know what I was good at other than being a lab tech and other than playing volleyball because those two things were gone. So I felt completely empty and useless. And the one thing that kind of helped me get through the whole process of finding a diagnosis was writing diary. And I've always been writing a lot since I've been a child. And then I just used this and put it together in a blog and just wrote about my life. And then I figured, okay, I'm kind of getting good at this. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you know, why don't I just try to educate people about my condition and write medical articles with, you know, like research reviews and something like that. 
And this is how I kind of got into journalism in the end. And then I studied journalism and now I have a master's in journalism. So for folks listening, and again, you'll learn everything on her homepage, which is just karina-sturm.com. You certainly have a dark sense of humor, which I adore when you're dealing with all this crap as a young woman. Your blog is called, holy shit, I'm sick. Man, is that refreshing. <laughs> Do you feel like when you started to meet other people that there was this common thread of like humor has to matter because it's just so inane? Yes. And also, I just like to curse a lot. <laughs> it kind of helps me cope. And yeah, I use the word shit and fuck a lot when I talk, which you probably noticed already. <laughs> no, it's it's important. I think, you know, we're, we're so sanitized in healthcare too frequently where we're just not, we're on a, we're like, let me say that again. We're so sanitized in the sense that we're afraid to speak authentically. Like people just want to hear raw conversation because you're allowed to have emotion. You're allowed to ex express yourself. And it, no better example of that is you went into filmmaking of all the, you're <laughs> like fancier. I'll just be a filmmaker one day. No, you didn't. <laughs> I, I need to hear the story of how that showed up. Sure. Um, first of all, I wouldn't call myself a filmmaker. I always feel like if I do, I, if, Actual filmmakers might think I suck <laughs> if they watch my film. No, I'm not a professional filmmaker. And this was also a coincidence again, because um, while I was studying, um, we had this documentary filmmaking module and our teachers said that we could do a documentary film for our, for our master's thesis. And I mean, of course, I had to do one about EDS, right? It was just the next logical step to take. Of course. And it was supposed to be a short film, but then <laughs> how can I tell all these stories in a short film? It's just not possible. So I decided to just do a feature length film. I had like no previous experience with film. I had no idea about editing. I didn't have a camera or even tried to film before. So it was all very interesting and very challenging, especially physically, um, but also a lot of fun. And the film was called We Are Visible. And I want to focus on that word visible, because when you have something weird in your body as a younger person, it often doesn't make you look sick. I have another colleague mm. whose blog was but you don't look sick, like so obvious. You don't look sick. What is your message? How do you get the word out that I can still be sick and not look sick? Well, I mean, I try to do that with my work pretty much, but I don't, I don't really know how to make people understand that they shouldn't judge someone by their appearance. It's just, it seems so obvious that you shouldn't do that because there are tons of chronic conditions that don't show up it's just like chronic pain you can see that like even lots of people that have cancer you don't see the cancer if they don't have chemo you know and lose their hair for example but it's just something people don't understand because they have this idea of illness and disability like if you're ill, you're supposed to suffer in a dark room in your bed all day. And if you're outside and smiling, you're obviously faking your illness, right? Because otherwise you couldn't possibly be smiling. Um, and it's just, it's, it's kind of ruining our good days when we can go outside because 
you know, people make these assumptions about us. And that's basically why I started my blog and also why I write all these articles about chronic conditions and disability, because I want to get rid of those stereotypes. Right. And, and for what it's worth, I often have a hard time doing a self-audit. If you've done a self-audit, people are really listening to you. Your film, whether you call yourself a filmmaker or not, you got so <laughs> many awards. I mean, you, on your website, it's just it's endless scroll of accolades and, and, and acclaim. I, I hope you're owning that because it really is a defining statement about how you can either become an advocate out of out of force and necessity or channel your inner advocate that hasn't yet been awakened. Do you hear from people who do not have EDS who've watched the film or is it still very limited in the awareness of this particular syndrome? I've heard of a couple of people that don't have EDS, but they are related to someone with EDS. So I feel like I always kind of reach the people that already know the stuff in the film, right? But what I completely forgot is that it's very important to relate to someone and to like feel seen and heard. And that was, I, I got many, many messages from people that just told me that it was so good to just finally feel like somebody made us visible. So I, while I kind of wanted to reach people without EDS so that they would learn more about EDS, I completely forgot that my community might have needed that film as well. Yeah, again, the accidental advocate. No one, no one woke up and said, I need a We Are Visible film one day. And then you kind of like, <laughs> you filled the demand that no one knew there was a demand for. And then boom, it's extraordinary. Could you walk us through, I mean, we're taping this hopefully at the famous last words, tail end of the pandemic. And it must have not been that much better for you to be quarantined and not being able to perhaps see your doctor. Is there a quick allegory of what the last 18 months have been like for you specifically with this condition? A shit show. <laughs> That's it. That's a quick allegory. Problem solved. <laughs> well done. No, I mean, it, 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 was, it wasn't that hard in terms of isolation because I am mainly at home anyway. Um, and actually all these um, Zoom appointments with doctors made a lot of things easier for me because all of a sudden, and I can rant about this all day long, but I'm so upset about the fact that when I was looking to study, there was no one that would... Uh, well, there was this one degree, um, but everyone else said, no, we can't make these accommodations. You can't study fully online. You can't study part-time, blah, blah, blah. And all of a sudden there is COVID, which affects the whole globe. And now we can do everything online. So my doctor's appointments, for example, that was really nice because all of a sudden I didn't have this whole traveling to my doctor, traveling back, which took so much energy out of me. And also I spent so much time doing that. Now I could do this from my couch and I don't really have to go to my doctors in person most of the time because most of what we do is talking about treatment options. So there is no like clinical test, which would require me to be there in person. Right. So that may, that was like really great during the pandemic 
But then there were parts that were harder. For example, um, I try to be a multimedia journalist. So I do a lot of text, but also kind of a little bit of audio and a lot of video. And that didn't work out because video via Zoom is just really bad quality for most parts. Right. By the way, so Zoom is kind of limited. Zoom, not a sponsor, but go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, um, they're not a sponsor. Video, go video off on them all you want. <laughs> no, so I was a little bit limited in my work as a journalist, but then... Again, I mean, doing interviews via some sort of video platform, um, it's much nicer and much easier for me physically, but I also do kind of miss just the personal connection, sitting there with a person in a coffee shop talking. Um, so there was good and bad, but I wouldn't say that COVID limited me too much. Right. It's a good example of when telehealth goes right because of necessity. Mm. But you're in a, I loved that how you described that you adapt your life around your symptoms and don't force the symptoms to change what you need to get done for yourself. So I'm, I'm only assuming that in the, <laughs> the good parts of COVID, said no one ever, you were really able to just <laughs> depend on a structure that really advanced. Like, like there was like, what's telehealth two years ago? Now it's like, there's only telehealth everything, everywhere you go. But, I mean, at the end of the day, I, I think what you've accomplished, again, you didn't set out to do this, ha has been just extraordinary and remarkable. And, uh, you know, this is not necessarily limited to EDS. You are a voice for just disability and rare disease and the common threads of, again, not being 80 and having to deal with a life that should be this and now it has to be this. Yeah, thanks. I'm I'm not as good as bragging about myself as you are. <laughs> I'm hired. Am I hired? Am I your publicist now? Okay, I'll take the job. Yeah, maybe you should be. <laughs> I'll take the job. You could pay me in credits for telehealth. <laughs> I don't think you need credits for that, do you? <laughs> I don't know. Well, yeah, you're in Europe, so healthcare is different. You know what? Let's let's end on on uh, try to be. You're so curt. I love it. All right, healthcare in the U.S. versus healthcare in Europe. Go. Oh, you, have, you have 11 seconds to answer the question. I'm totally kidding. <laughs> um, well, there are good and bad parts in all countries, I guess. I mean, I can mainly talk about the US and also specifically only about California and then about Germany. I can say that my quality of life was much better in California, especially because there were more knowledgeable doctors um, regarding EDS, but also they were paid well so they could spend more time with me and just spend like an hour talking to me um this is something that never happened to me in germany because they just don't get paid to treat chronically ill people so you get like 10 minutes and i can hardly fit my medical history in 10 minutes um, but then on the other hand, of course, there is the costs, right? In the United States, if you don't have a good health insurance or even with a good health insurance, you pay so much just in coinsurance and co-payment and whatever this shit is called. In Germany, most of this is free. So while I don't have too many experts in Germany, I at least don't have to pay as much as I do in the United States. Like a good example is... Um, I had a super good insurance in the United States, so I was very lucky. Um, and I had an MRI for uh, 
misdiagnosis. Um, they thought I had pancreatic cancer, which I didn't. But I needed an MRI. And it was covered by insurance, but I still had to pay more than $1,000 in coinsurance. Um, you could pay several MRIs in Germany out of pocket with that money. <laughs> so those are the main differences, I guess. I think you summed it up quite eloquently. It's all shit. <laughs> there you go. Uh, it kind of uh, is. <laughs> all right. All right. Karina uh, Sturm, uh, self-proclaimed and rightfully so disabled journalist, blogger, author. You do claim to be a filmmaker. I'm leaning in. You're a filmmaker. Chronically ill people. <laughs> you are representing all of them around the world, spreading the word about your condition, but to inspire others. You are on Facebook, Vimeo, Instagram, Twitter, again, and your website is Karina-Sturm, S-T-U-R-M. We'll put a link in the description. I can't thank you enough for sharing your story here on NordPod. Well, thanks so much for having me. This was so much fun. All right, take care, stay well, and again, thank God it wasn't pancreatic cancer. <laughs> well, that was a good one, at least. Yep. Be good. Bye-bye. <laughs> you too. Thanks. Bye. That's all for today. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all your friends to listen. NordPod is a product of the National Organization for Rare Disorders and Offscript Media. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Leslie Nordstrom. Andrew McDowell is our senior producer. Valerie Don Francesco is our marketing manager. Darren Tun is our production intern. It is recorded, mixed, and edited by Matthew Zachary and the post-production team at Offscript Media. Our theme music is by the Salvatones. Learn more about the music of the Salvatones at salvatones.org. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. Hit us up at contact at offscript.com to share comments, feedback, and make guest recommendations. For more information, visit nordpod.org. find cars like these on auto trader like that car riding right your tail or if you're tailgating right now all those cars doubling as kitchens and living rooms are on auto trader too are you working out and listening to this ad at the same time well multitasking pro cars like the ones in the gym parking lot are for sale on auto trader new cars used cars electric cars maybe even flying cars okay no flying cars but as soon as they get invented they'll be on auto trader just you wait auto trader